Thanks for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected to all things the Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend, because change lives, change lives. All right, well, welcome. I'm Andy Monin, one of the pastors here at the Valley Church. It's just good to be with you. And it really is good to be with you because I was sick enough this week, I wasn't sure I was going to make it. And if my voice goes, we'll just call it a day. Um, so <laughs> hopefully that won't happen, okay? But uh, because love this series. Man, we're in the middle of a series called Family Foundations. We're looking at the fundamentals of, of a great uh, biblical family, what it looks like. And uh, people, we're, we're taking a look at some of the things people seem to be especially struggling with today. We talked about marriage. We talked about what happens if you are divorced or, or heading that direction. That was last week. And so this week, we're going to look at conflict, how to fight like family. One of my favorites was with a guy one time, and, the, and there were two guys that were, were giving him a hard time, and you could tell there was going to fight break out. And this guy looked at those two guys, and I love what he said, something I, I, I could never, never probably say. But he looked at those two guys and said, this isn't a fair fight. You need to go get a couple more. And uh, I, always, <laughs> I always thought, no, nah, I, I couldn't do that. I, I like my face too much. You know, I, I, so I personally never used that line. But we... we uh, most of us would rather not fight at all. Have you noticed that? Most of us would rather not fight at all. I've done a lot of premarital counseling um, for couples that are going to be married, and every now and then I'll get a couple that says they don't fight. And uh, maybe by that they mean that they've learned how to work out um, conflict, and, and, and uh, so, so, so they're good with that now. But more often I think what it means is one or both don't really want to have conflict, so they bury it, and that never works for long because the pressure builds, and at some point it blows. The lid comes off with a bang. And uh, so we can pretend Jesus' followers don't have conflict, but it's just not true. The Bible's full of examples of conflict. It starts all the way with Adam and Eve. Uh, Eve gives Adam the fruit, and uh, Adam says, she made me do it, essentially. And you can bet that started a fight. You, you can bet that started a fight. And then there's Isaac and Jacob. Any number of the disciples, they're always at each other. The, in, in some sense, there's conflict between them. If you look at the New Testament churches, some of the epistles, some of the letters that are written, like Corinthians, for instance, are dealing with church conflict. So over and over and over, these believers are having disagreements. In fact, two of my, two, two of my personal heroes in God's Word, Paul and Barnabas, have such a disagreement. Paul is like, church planner, planner extraordinaire. He's, he, he's launched all these New Testament churches. He's written a third of the New Testament. I mean, you talk about he's, he's your example, right, for, for somebody who knows how to, to live out what God has called him to do. I mean, here's a guy who was willing to pay any cost to reach people for the gospel. He has a courage that I desire to have. And then there's Barnabas. He's, the, he's this great encourager, like he sees things in people that other people just don't see or they miss. Or, and, and he hangs with them long enough to develop them. He doesn't give up on people. Well, Paul and Barnabas are about to go on this missionary journey, and there's this guy named John Mark, this young guy that Barnabas wants to take along. He sees a lot in him. John Mark, by the way, is the guy who probably writes the Gospel of Mark later, so there is something in him. Barnabas sees that, but he's, he's, he's kind of split the scene a couple times on Paul, or at least once, and and because he's deserted them, Paul doesn't want to take him along. And look, 
look what happens. This is fascinating to me. It says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. These are two followers of Christ, like sold out for God, and yet they have a sharp disagreement. They're in conflict. I want you to know that happens between believers. And if you think you're immune to conflict in your relationships, in your marriages, in your family, in the church, you got another thing coming. Uh, I don't, uh, I remember when I was, uh, I was working in a company, I was in the sales and marketing, and I was sitting in my cube farm in the middle, you know, out in the middle there, and uh, I remember there was always this kind of this, conf- not conflict, but there was this tension between sales and marketing. We get the orders, and, um, and, and, and accounting would want to make sure that they had enough credit to cover the order. So there was this natural tension. I, I just recommitted my life to Christ. So I was trying to live out what you're, you know, and, and be this, this person who's, who's loving and kind and all that good stuff. Well, this lady came and badgered me right in the middle of the cube farm, and she had done this enough that I finally just lost it. I gave her a piece of my mind. It didn't take long. <laughs> and I remember just telling her to get out of my space. And I look around, and all these people are watching. <laughs> and there's conflict. You and I are, are, if we live around other believers, because the reality is we're human, and we're not perfect, and and we have differing opinions and ideas and thoughts that there's going to be conflict in our lives. And you and I better learn how to resolve it or it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt the relationships that we have with each other. Now, you might say, why does it matter? Why does this matter anyway? I remember I was sitting right here doing an interview with somebody years ago sharing their story and how they'd come to Christ and, and, and how before they'd come to Christ, there was this anger that was in them. And they didn't even understand the anger. But it had welled up from all the conflicts that were unresolved in their life, or their conflict with God, their conflict with other people. And it had created such an anger that it, it had destroyed most of the relationships in their life, including with God. See, that's why it matters. If we don't know how to deal with the conflict in our life, it will destroy what, what God has given us. And so we're going to learn how today to deal with conflict. And uh, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, by the way, probably the easiest way to do that is just pull out your phone, um, text TVC app to that number, 77977. It'll send you a link. When you click the link, you download the app. But guess what? Then when the app's downloaded, you can like just choose the U version, and it'll gonna, it's going to give you the passage all the fill-in-the-blanks for today, and then everything we just talked about um, as far as everything going on at the valley. So I encourage you to do that. Just take a few minutes right now and do that while we're getting started here. But if you have your own Bible, um, you might want to dog-ear this. Uh, David Paulison, he's a, he's a counselor that I've spent some time reading in the Journal of Counseling. Uh, this guy says that in a pinch, the book of Ephesians um, can, can handle all your counseling needs. Like in a pinch, it's the go-to book for counseling. So you might want to dog ear it if you've got uh, a paper Bible. Uh, you might want to bookmark it if you're doing this online. But the reality is the book of Ephesians, like it's just so good and so practical. And so we're going to take a look at how do you how to deal with conflict in your life. Now, These two passages we're going to take a look at, one in four and one in five in Ephesians. Um, One is about marriage, one's about the church. But the reality is um, the the source 
of all conflicts basically are the same, whether it's marriage or, or whether it's the church or whether it's your family, and, the, and the, the way to resolve them are basically the same. Now, I want you to say, as we use this marriage illustration, some people want to check out right away, I want you to know the way God often describes the relationship He has with you, with His church, as a marriage. And so I want you to understand this, the, the, this, the context of this applies to your life. So as he talks about marriage, so he's really talking about all the relationships. That principle can apply to all the relationships in your lives. So let's look what he has to say. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, we learned in week one that the purpose of marriage isn't just to make us happy. It's not just to fulfill us, to meet our needs, to, to, to self-actualize us and all those good things. It does do some of those things, but it's got a far greater purpose. You see, marriage is there to make us holy. See, the framework, the framework uh, that God gives us in marriage gives us the ability to develop relationships. Said another way, God's purpose for marriage is to create a framework for lifelong love between a man and a woman. But what if the same is true for family? I believe it is. You see, God puts us in marriage. He puts us in family. He puts us in the church. And you and I are to work out the conflicts we have with each other in any one of those spheres because he's put us in that framework and we're not to leave just because we have a conflict. We're to work it out. And when we work it out, not only the grace that God gives us, but we give to other people in that moment when we're working it out, guess what? In that, he uses it to make us holy. Like it takes us going to the cross. It takes us bearing burdens to work through conflict. And so God doesn't want us to leave the marriage. He doesn't want us to leave the church, the family. No, he wants us to learn to resolve conflict in there, and, and he uses that as a tool for us to grow, to become holy. Now, I want us to get to the source of what conflict is. So we go to James chapter 4, and it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. I think we can sum it up by saying it's idols. It's idols. You see, we have desires. We want something. We can't get it. And we make it more important than what God wants for our marriage relationship or what he wants for our family relationship or what he wants for the church. And so it's really about are we, going to put, are we going to make those things idols, the things that we want and our desires, or are we willing to subordinate them things, those things, to the relationships? See, it's in putting God's desires above ours in laying down our rights and our preferences and above all subordinating ourself to us that we overcome the root of conflict. You aren't going to get through conflict if you put yourself in the driver's seat, if you put yourself at the top shelf. It doesn't mean that you become a doormat. This isn't about doing something unhealthy. This is about saying us is more important than just me. And, and that's countercultural. We're told to take care of ourselves, to make sure that we're, you know, we're fulfilled and our cup is full and all those kind of things. The reality is what if I told you that your cup will be full when you subordinate yourself? It's so countercultural. But that's what God wants for us. 
we want to be healthy and whole, it's going to take us subordinating ourselves to us. Now, Paul gives us three commands when we get to Ephesians uh, to help us resolve conflict. So now we understand that God has a purpose for marriage. He has a purpose for family. He's got a purpose for the church. And, and that is to use those relationships, the framework that holds us together to, to make us solve and resolve the conflicts because it makes us holy. I really believe that's the underlying foundation. So then we can go in with a new mindset as we take a look at these. And so let's, let's look at this, what the Scripture says in 4 and 5. It says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And by the way, the body, now we've shifted from marriage, we're talking about the church. He's talking about the church universal here and the church local, actually. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice. So, so here's the first command that Paul gives us in resolving conflict, and he knows a lot about this because the churches have a lot going on that he's planted. The first thing he says is be angry and don't sin. Be angry and don't sin. Notice what Paul isn't saying. He's, he's not saying don't get angry. Angry is a God-given, healthy human emotion, at least it is at first, <laughs> It's when it keeps going on and on and on that it turns into something else. But what Paul does say is, in your anger, do not sin. See, anger is this healthy human emotion. But when we live in it, when it gets out of control, it can turn destructive. When that ha happens, anger really becomes a wrecking ball for the relationships that you're in. The results of that we see every day in the newspapers. Uh, wasn't long ago, Ronald Lee Haskins, uh, who was estranged from his wife, went to his sister's house looking for his wife, asked where she was at. They wouldn't tell him. He proceeded to line up his sister, brother-in-law, four nieces and nephews, and shot him. What was that? That was anger that had not been resolved. That was conflict that hadn't been dealt with. And it, and it came out, it bubbled over, and it, it caused him to do something that he'll regret the rest of his life. Anger can destroy relationships. It destroys marriages. I believe part of every divorce, there's the root of anger in that, in that decision. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys individual friendships. So you and I, what are we to do? We're to feel our anger. We're to acknowledge it. It's kind of like I've learned uh, uh, with grief. When people don't grieve, I'm like, man, hey, wait a minute. If you don't grieve, if you don't name what you've lost and feel it and then, and then move on, what's going to happen is that, that that grief is going to come back. And if you don't deal with your grief, it's going to deal with you. The same is true with anger. We have to acknowledge the anger in our life. It's, it's a God-given emotion. I think it's an early warning system that says, hey, my boundaries have been trampled. Something isn't right here. And that's an okay thing to feel. God put it there for a reason. The reality is, though, you and I can't live there. Because what happens is if we let it live there, it grows. 
I'm, uh, I'm, I just started gardening again, and uh, so you'll be hearing more about that. But I put some lettuce and uh, some spinach out, and I had to weed the garden already. <laughs> yes, it goes quick. And I found there were, there were a couple weeds. They're fun to pull. Like they only are about, the roots are about that deep. I mean, they're just barely, and they're just, it's even kind of fun to pull those things out. But there are a few weeds that like, they've already grown five, six inches in the dirt, and there's these tentacles, that come, these roots that are all over. And when you pull them, they, they're so firmly embedded that when I try to pull the thing out, only the top comes off, and there, there, there's the whole root system underneath. You know that thing's coming back. Unless you get a shovel, you aren't getting it out. That, that's what happens with anger. When we, when we acknowledge it, but we don't let it go. And that's what God is saying. You can't let anger make decisions for you. So feel the anger, but don't stay in it because what's going to happen is it's, it's making decisions for you. That's really what anger can do. And that's what happened with Ronald Haskins as he nursed that anger and rehearsed that anger. It developed a life of its own. It got stronger. It developed such a root system that it, it couldn't let go and it it started to make decisions for him. And that's really what Paul's saying. Acknowledge your anger. Feel it. Maybe you've got to set some boundaries up in your life. Maybe you've got to tell somebody, you know, you've hurt me in this way, so I accept you, I love you, you can stay, but this kind of behavior can't. And, and until you change that, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't have the same kind of relationship with you. It's okay to set some boundaries, and people will see that as a negative, right? But it's okay to set boundaries in your life. It's okay if somebody's abusing you to, 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 put a, to, to put some safety around you. That's what anger does. It's that early warning that says, I'm being trampled. But you can't stay there. Because what's happening, acknowledging anger isn't the same as letting it make decisions for you. And that's what Paul's saying. In your anger, do not sin. Because if you leave it there, you will. In fact, in verse 27, it says, do not give the devil a foothold. I've come to realize that anger isn't just a toehold. It's not that little deal. It's not just a foothold. Like, this is a big, huge shelf in most people's life. And if you just feel it, that's one thing. But if you begin to nurse and rehearse, it, it, it's going to be such a huge part of your marriage or your family relationship or the church. It's, it, it's going to dwarf and it's going to color everything else you do. Do not give the devil a foothold, a place where he can begin to build a wall between you and other people. So maybe today you need to, maybe you need to acknowledge some anger. Maybe you've never acknowledged it. You just pushed it away. Maybe that person's already died. You know, it's okay to acknowledge that anger to them even after they're gone, if that's something you've been holding on to. Maybe there's someone in your life you just need to acknowledge, you, you trampled me there, that hurt. And, and it's best not to say you did this and you did that. There's a better way to do it. You know what it is? When this happened, it made me feel this way. And that's not being accusing. That's saying this hurt me. And I'll just tell you, there aren't a lot of people that, when you put it that way, don't begin to feel inside sorry for what they've done, sorry for how they made you feel. See, there's a way to do it. Maybe you need to God, ask God to, to help you not let anger choose for you because you're hurting people around you because of the anger that you feel. And maybe today, that, that's been a source of ongoing conflict. Maybe for you, for you today, that's something you need to, to talk to God about or talk to someone else about. The second command is this, be kind and forgive. Sounds kind of quaint, 
Sounds kind of easy, doesn't it? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In other words, just as God forgave you, you're to forgive other people. It's, it's kind of like this. When we realize what God has really done for us by what Jesus did on the cross, we realize what grace, what, what mercy, what favor he's shown us. It's almost like he's scooped it in scoop shovels to us. And when we realize the full extent of what God has done for us, what Paul is saying is do the same for someone else. Like I want you to do what God's done for you, I want you to do for someone else. Kindness is treating someone with favor they didn't earn and caring for them. You see, he says be kind. When you're angry at somebody, it's kind of hard to be kind, isn't it? But you can choose to be kind. You can treat them with favor even though they may have hurt you, right? Forgiveness, on the other hand, is paying down debt somebody owes you because of what they've done to hurt you. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And you know what it meant was the debt payment was complete. What he, he had done in our place was finished on the cross. It was about debt, the debt of our sin. Well, you know what? When people hurt you, there's a debt they owe you. At least that's how we feel, right? There's a debt to be paid. And I want you to know forgiveness is kind of like paying their debt. That, that's a new way for me of actually seeing debt, or, or seeing forgiveness, rather. But I've come to realize the Bible says that we're to forgive people 70 times 7 if we need. You know, that, what does it mean? It really is saying as, as often as needed. Th those are numbers of completeness. And it's saying basically all the time you need. If you need to forgive them 70 times 7 or forever, you just keep forgiving. And what I've come to realize, a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I can forgive that person. That was so big. I just don't know if it's in me. I'll tell you what you can do. Like when it comes to your mind, when you feel that hurt, you can forgive them in that moment. You can release it to God. You can say, God, I'm releasing that debt. You may not feel like it, but you can choose to do that. And you're paying down the debt. Maybe it's one payment at a time. But God calls us to be forgiving. It doesn't mean you have to let them do the same thing to you. Maybe forgiveness it means releasing them and at the same time setting up a boundary so that they don't hurt you again. But you and I have to let justice rest with God. Like we can't hold unforgiveness. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now am I back? Okay, I'm back. All right. That gave it time to sink in, right? Because that's a big concept, right? You and I, sometimes we let unforgiveness be how we administer justice. That's the way we're going to get them. We're going to get them back. We're going to hear them. But, but God says let justice rest with him. He says, crystal clear in verse 31, get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, Rage and anger, you know, that's when it rises up and it, it really gets a mind of its own like Ronald Haskins. Brawling, that's physical fighting. Slander is when you say bad things about other people. Every form of malice, that's just when you're going to make life difficult for the other person. You're going to try and hurt them back. That's, that's, that's badness in, in goodwill. Like there is no goodwill. It's now bad will toward the other person. He says get rid of that. Because the reality is 
The longer you allow this unresolved anger to go, the more it gets a life of its own. See, you and I are going to have to let our anger go instead of letting it grow. We're going to have to let our anger go instead of letting it grow. And so if you nurse that anger, you know what happens? It grows, kind of like that weed I talked about before. Right there, when you acknowledge it, it's like the weed just with a very quick root, and you can pull it out. It may not be easy, but it's much easier to pull than when it goes six inches down. It's got all those tentacles of roots all over the place. You aren't going to, I mean, bitterness takes a root of its own, and it will take over your life. That's why in verse 26, it says this. It says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, you have to deal with your anger pretty quickly. Acknowledge it, yes. Feel it, but then get rid of it. Trust it with God. Don't use your anger as a weapon. You see, you and I weaponize anger so that we can get back. And God says, no, 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 that's for me. Because what happens is it turns into bitterness. And bitterness, I want you to hear this, bitterness is trying to hurt the other person. <laughs> it's like trying to hurt the other person by drinking a cup of poison yourself. Because that's what bitterness is. Bitterness says, I'm going to hurt them through unforgiveness. But what happens is you become poisoned. And it colors everything you do. And now your life is more strapped to this other person even than ever before. You see, you've kind of strapped yourself to a dead person in some sense. That's what happens with bitterness. It's not you. It's not yours. Maybe somebody hurt you. They left you. They treated you badly. They said something that they shouldn't have said. They rejected you. You're going to have to let... God, deal with that. You're going to feel it, and then you're going to release it and pay the debt every time. See, that's what God calls you to do. In his grace and in his mercy, pay the debt each time it comes up. Pay down the debt because you can't handle it. It's above your pay grade. My dad was a brick mason, so I worked for him as a hod carrier, and uh, that's when I was a kid. So I, I put up brick on the scaffolding. I would set up scaffolding. I would mix the mortar, put the mortar up, clean the job site like I was gopher number one. Did, did it all, right? But I remember there was one job my dad wouldn't let me do. And that was at the end of the job, we would take muriatic acid, came in this big rubber barrel, like it was, you knew this was not good stuff. And you'd take this muriatic acid and you would, you would brush it all over the brick. And what it would do is eat off all the mortar bits. It would, it would eat off the dirt, any effervescence, which is really just the salt deposits that when moisture comes, it, it comes through and stains the brick. It would just eat that stuff right off. But it would also eat your eye out. If you breathed it, it would scar your lungs. If, it, if you got it on your skin, it would burn you. And my dad knew we were a bit too careless for that. It was just a bit above our pay grade. And we couldn't handle it. So he never, he never let us deal with muriatic acid. God says, anger's like that. It's too powerful of an emotion. It, it's too much for you. So I'm, I'm going to deal with the anger. Let me handle the justice. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And sometimes through unforgiveness, through a willingness to let conflict go on, what we're really trying to do is get back at the other person. We're trying to mete out justice. And God says, no, 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 that's not yours. And the reality is, God is up here and he sees it all. He knows all. He even knows our own heart way better than we know ourselves. And sometimes we think we know someone else's motive. We think we know what happened, but we don't know what happened in their whole life. 
we don't know the struggles where they've been, and we don't even know our own heart. And God says, I do, and I know what the right amount of justice is, and I know how to deal with this. So trust me. It really is a trust issue. It's a trust issue. Do you need God to remove a bitter root from your heart? Have you allowed a conflict to go beyond you, what it should, and you've harbored the anger, and now it's, you've weaponized it? It's going to destroy your marriage. It'll destroy your family. I've seen fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, siblings, allowed to go on for far too long, and it's destroyed any semblance of relationship. It's destroyed people in the church. It's destroyed friendships. And God says, will you let that bitter root go? Let me handle the justice. And you'll be amazed at what God will do when you shovel that grace the way he shoveled it to you, how he will transform what you thought was not transformable. There's a third command Paul gives us, and it's this. He says, speak words of life, not death. Speak words of life, not death. Many of you have heard this scripture over and over. Others, maybe you've never heard it. This is the first time. But it's often quoted. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's saying, we're to let our words build and not tear down. Words that come from us should create life, not destroy life in other people. So there are some practical strategies I want to give you. I'm just going to shoot right to the practical strategies on this. And the first is choose your battles. Choose your battles. You don't have to comment on everything. Facebook has made that way too easy, right? Just pitch it out there, make a comment about everything on there. Oh, they posted, I should say. No. You don't need to comment about everything. In fact, sometimes words of life are just no words at all. <laughs> and, and, and we've gotten into this mode in our culture today that we have to think we have an opinion about everything. You don't have to have, a, you can have an opinion, but you don't have to voice it. Sometimes we just don't need to comment on everything. And then there's this idea that we ought to seek to understand rather than be understood. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're like me and like, you're already formulating your thought before the other person's even done. I like to get ahead. <laughs> I'm a counterpunch kind of person, you know, what that, so I'm thinking ahead. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Oh, that's tough. That, that might be one of the harder ones in the Bible, for honest. That might be one of the harder passages and commands to follow. But I want you to know this. People are not a problem to be solved they're a person to be heard. They're not a problem to be solved. They're a person to be heard. Men, I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you a pointer here. Your wife, when she's sharing, really just wants you to feel her pain, not solve her problem. So, if you want to get a lot of points, you all want points. Come on, we like to score, okay? We want, you want points? Here's the way to do it. Hey, honey, when you're saying this, that means, man, you felt this way, right? The big points. You, you pair it back how she's feeling. You, you want to go negative? You want to go in the negative territory? All you have to do is say, well, if you would have just so-and-so and told them this and, and solved their problem, that, that's how you go in the negative territory on the point deal. Because people aren't a problem to be solved. They're a person to be heard. And in some ways, 
even in listening, it's connected to our words. You know, I've done some, some counseling with, with uh, again, couples or just people, and they're working through their problems. They come, they want some help, and we talk through it, and they, they tell me their issue, and they say, what should I do? And I said, well, tell, tell me, what do you think might be some ideas here? And, you know, almost nine out of ten cases, they proceed to tell me exactly what they need to do. They already know. They just need somebody to hear and affirm. And, and people are like that. So sometimes we just speak too quickly. And I'll just tell you, words create a lot of conflict in life. I want you to know that. So we have to be really careful with our words because they lead to actions. And then we have, and I think this is the most important one, frankly, is that we have to seek the good of the relationship over our own desires. Do you know that when we're seeking our own desires, when we're seeking what's good for us, we often will tend to get negative about other people. But when we're seeking the good of the relationship, we tend to get positive. And do you know that uh, these studies show that a positive, uh, in a good relationship, a healthy relationship, has 10 positive interactions for every negative interaction for the words that are used? And so the question today is where are you at in that whole deal? It might give you an indication whether it's about you or it's about us. It's about the marriage relationship. It's about the family. It's about, it's about the connection I have with people at the church. But you see, it gets a whole lot more positive. It might be a barometer for you about how things are going because words can be a key to resolving conflict because they lead to actions. Our words can, in some ways, lead our hearts. So your words matter. Your words matter. That's why there's no place in, in our relationships for yelling and screaming for cutting down. Criticism, in some ways, I think is a poison. I know some people, it, it, it's kind of funny to be critical or, or to have, you know, to, to, to be sarcastic, so to speak. But the reality is, often it comes across as cutting to other people. And so, I don't think there's any place for those kind of things. I, would, I, I think you'll, you'll discover that actually you'll have more positive relationships without those things. So, how do you apply all this? Where's the rubber meet the road on this whole thing? Like, all that we've just talked about, what do we do? I really think it comes down to this. You've got to subordinate me to us. That doesn't mean you're a doorstep. doesn't mean you're a doormat. But it means us is more important than just me alone because God created us for a community. He created us for a community. He put us in marriage relationships, many of us, and it's the best thing that's going to happen for many of us. He created a framework for love. He created a framework for love in your family. He created a framework for love and relationship of people in the church. That's why he created the church. And in that framework, it says when things go bad, we get into conflict, we just don't leave because that's the way we're going to resolve it, or I'll just stay mad forever and we'll weaponize our anger. No, no, no. God says you're going to res resolve it my way, and, and I'm going to give you the tools to do that. And when you do that, you're going to end up being more like me. See, you and I, we always have to work for the unity of the relationship. Unity doesn't mean uniform, doesn't mean we're all alike. It just means we're, we're going to be different. There's going to be a Paul and Barnabas moment in every one of your lives. I call it the Paul and Barnabas moment. It happens in churches. It happens in marriages. It happens in families. How you deal with that Paul and Barnabas moments determine how your life's going to come out. Did you know that? Because conflict has destroyed churches, families, and marriages. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to divide and destroy. He wants to create conflict between two Christ followers, and he wants to see the explosion. And one of them let that anger make them choose to do ungodly 
things. Can you imagine a world where followers of Christ would choose to work out conflict this way? How much more we would look like Jesus in our marriages and our families and in the church. How, how if we allow conflict to actually be a tool for us to grow instead of a, a time for us to divide and split and show the world like I did in that office environment, just like how ugly we can be at times. Can you imagine? God wants us to imagine, and he's given us every ability to do that. So today, take all that you've learned about fighting fair, about working through conflict, and put it into practice and see if God doesn't give you the grace to restore those relationships, to take away the bitter root, and to take away that simmering anger. Sometimes it's the yelling and shouting. Sometimes... For some, it's just the step back and the I don't care attitude. That's anger as well. That destroys relationship because God wants us, like he wants us to be loved. And it's the people around us, that framework he's given us, that gives us the ability to have that kind of love. Let's pray. Father, I, I just pray for that person here today who's, who's, uh, who's been hurt and, and they're, they never acknowledge their anger Father, would you help them today to just name it? And then would you help them in the next few moments to release it, to give it to you, to let you be the God of justice? Father, would you help them not to, not to understand or not to try to figure it all out, but just to trust you that as they release it, that you will administer justice in the exact right way, whether it's to forgive the other person or whether long-term, if they never if they never come to a right relationship with you, that you'll solve it in the end times. But Father, we just, we just put it into your hands. And Father, we, I pray for that person to do that. I pray, Father, for that person who's gone into bitterness. Would you, would you help them pull the root of that? It's beyond them. Only you can do that. But that simmering anger has destroyed the relationships around them. It's cooled the love they have for the church, for their family, for siblings, for their spouse. Father, would you restore their love for each other? Would you, would you help them to see in the heart of the other person the, the hurt and the pain that maybe caused them to hurt, <laughs> to hurt you? And Father, would you, would you help them to release it? Would you pull up that root in a way that only you can? And Father, would you make us holy? Would you make us like you? Father, thank you that you've given us the tools, that you've given us your grace that we can overcome these conflicts, we'll do it your way, and that our marriages and our families and this church, this body of believers can be a blessed place where we, we can love each other, where we can be encouraged by each other, where we can feel safe and secure. And that's what we ask, and we ask it in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, I want to remind you that as you go out, there are some marriage resources we'd love to give to you. And uh, you can take your Connect cards, put them in the joy box, leave them on your chair. Love for you to fill that out. Next week, we're going to talk about the reality that being lonely is optional in the church. So see you next week. Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see changed lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your spiritual journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message.